Good morning. If you ask little kids what they want to be when they grow up, the answer you get from them depends on the phase in which they are in. So, you know, it can be some fantastical figure that they've seen on TV, or it can be astronaut or a pilot or something just so outlandish. So when we asked our kids what they want to be when they get older, our five-year-old said that he wants to be like Dada. And we were super excited and, uh, because, you know, that would save a lot of, it was financially a sound decision. I mean, so we, started to, so we started to make plans for him to intern with me during his teenage years. And then we made plans that he could buy my practice, which would, which would be great for me to hand it over to him once he was done. And then he said, uh, well, if, if I cannot be like Dada, I would like to be a dinosaur. So that kind of changed things a little bit. I was just glad that I was one step above a dinosaur in his mind. People choose jobs for their glamour or their money-making potential or their ease. The money-making jobs have high risk. And so people take that high risk to make that high money. But if you ask a little kid that's not in a missionary family or not a pastor's kid what they want to become, nobody ever says that they want to become a missionary. Nobody ever says that they want to become a Christian minister. And this is because the Christian ministry is fraught with problems. And there are lots of issues that a minister of the gospel or a missionary has to deal with. And this morning in a sermon entitled Thorns and Thistles, we will look at some opposition in Christian ministry. Our text is from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 following. I will read the same three verses like we did yesterday and I will focus in then on the part that I want to focus in on today. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul says, we are striving together for the, as one for the faith of the gospel. The Christian ministry is a striving. It is a striving. It is not a vacation. It is not a relaxation. It is not a party. It is a struggle. And when Paul writes this, he is writing this from prison. The letter to the Philippines was written from possibly a Roman prison and probably... At the time in Acts chapter 28, when he was in prison there, that's the time that he wrote the book of Philippians. So he has first-hand information about a struggle. And our main text for this morning, we will turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we will look at verses 23 to maybe 33. I will not be reading the whole passage right now, but we will pick up verses from there that talk about Paul's struggle, Paul's opposition. And this morning, I would like to talk about seven 
thorns that a Christian minister, a Christian missionary will face in their work. Obviously, this is not an exclusive list. There could be more types of thorns, categories of thorns, but I've come up with seven of them, and most missionaries will face some of these thorns. The first one that I want to mention are satanic attacks, satanic attacks. Second Corinthians, and we will read some of these verses in this passage, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been opposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And if you notice, in the book of Acts, all of this is not mentioned. So as we said yesterday, when Luke wrote his account, he wasn't trying to include every single thing that happened. He just picked up certain events that happened that he felt was convincing enough for Theophilus, who was going to read this. But a lot of things happened to Paul that is revealed here, and Paul is under duress, if you will, and is forced to make this confession that he doesn't want to make. He received 39 lashes from the Jews five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned once, and that is recorded in the book of Acts. Do we know how stoning happens? Stoning happens even in Muslim cultures today. There is stoning that happens. In stoning, they dig a little hole and they have the victim stand in that hole till they are waist high or chest high. In Muslim cultures, what they do is they do the preparation for the burial before they put the victim in the hole because the patient, not the patient, the, the victim will be dead when it's done. So they put the victim in the hole, they usually cover the head, and then they just stand behind and throw stones to the face and head and upper torso. And the rule is you don't want to throw too small of a, a pebble because that's not going to kill anybody. And you don't want to throw a big rock because that's going to kill somebody too soon. So the idea is to throw a medium-sized rock at somebody's head and upper torso until they are dead. And sometimes there is a doctor in the crowd that will come and if the victim is motionless, he'll come and check if they are dead already. And if they are not dead, he will step back and they will continue the stoning until they are dead. So when it happened to Paul, the Bible says that he was like dead. Probably there wasn't a doctor in the crowd to come and check his pulse to see if he was actually dead. But he was motionless enough that they thought he was dead, that they left. And the Bible says the disciples came and lifted him up and took him. We may face satanic attacks, and when I say we may, I mean we will face satanic attacks in Christian ministry. There are numerous examples of satanic attacks that you will face. And the reason I, I made this my first point is that for every point after this, Satan can work through any of those points. 
and he can work against us. Many times, Satan can work through our kids. They are vulnerable. They are small, and, and they don't know any better. So if you find that your kids are completely out of control, out of the blue, maybe it is the devil trying to influence and uh, trying to get under your skin by coming to you through your kids. I remember when my dad used to go on uh, missionary trips, there would be something that we three brothers would do that would drive my mom crazy. My younger brother would have an accident or he would jump from the roof and break his bones or something would happen that would drive a wedge in the ministry or attempt to do so. Or you can have distractions. I mean, even legitimate things that need to be done now seem so important that you have to do it right now that will distract you from the thing that God has asked you to do right now. Or it may be that on the morning that you're going to give a powerful sermon that you have some kind of a disagreement with your spouse and things spiral totally out of control in a matter of minutes. And two minutes later you're like, how did we get here? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He may use physical means, but the battle is a spiritual battle. Every time you try something powerful, or God wants to do something powerful through you, Satan is always there. He's always there. At the church that I'm a teaching pastor at, I speak there once a month. The last time I spoke, after I spoke, I came out and a couple of leaders of the church came to me and said um, that they were going to do a 24-hour prayer the Saturday before Easter leading up to Easter. So they were just letting me know about it. And I said, you know, we used to do that back in India. And the first time we did it, we didn't know how that was going to work. I mean, how were we going to pray for 24 hours? What were we going to do? But... Time went by so quick. We prayed and we, and we worshipped and we read the Bible and we confessed. And it was, an, it was a powerful time. It was such a powerful time that we wanted to do it more frequently. So we ended up doing it once a month, doing a 24-hour prayer. It was so powerful. But what we did notice was that every time we did that, there would be opposition from the evil one because that was a very powerful meeting. In the days leading up to the meeting and the days after the meeting, there would be things that would go wrong all the time in everybody's houses. So when I spoke to these leaders, I told them, be aware that things are going to go wrong so that you don't show up for the meeting or the meeting is distracted enough that it doesn't happen. And the thing is, it's not just, well, something bad happened to me because I'm doing the ministry. Anybody who is connected to me also faces the ripples of what happens to me, right? So unfortunately, our kids are involved in it. My family is involved in it. My other uh, extended family is probably involved in it. Your connections will be affected when Satan attacks you. And that's just 
That's just how it is because we are in circles. We live in circles. And so it is one of those things that we cannot get around, but we have obviously the power of God in us. If we don't face any opposition, okay, if we don't face any opposition from the devil, okay, let me just back up for a second. I'm almost happy when I face an opposition from the devil because I know that I'm doing something that he wants to prevent. If you have absolutely no opposition from the devil, you've got to stand back and wonder, why isn't even the devil opposing my work? Okay. We are going to face opposition. We are going to face opposition. And there are many demons. There are so many demons that it appears as if Satan is omnipresent, but he's not omnipresent. Let's read some verses. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3. I will read it for us. Revelation 12, 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Verse 4. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now from this passage it is thought that when Satan fell he took a third of the angels with him and those angels became demons. Let's read another verse. Revelation chapter 5 in verse 11. Revelation chapter 5 verse 11. John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. Now, when it says thousand upon thousand and ten thousand times ten thousand, he is not giving a mathematical number. He is just saying it is a, a large number of angels. If there are almost an infinite number of angels, one third of an infinite number is almost an infinite number. It is a large number of angels. Let's read another verse. Job chapter 1, verse 7. Where are those angels? Where are those demons right now? Where is Satan right now? Job chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. So where is Satan and all the demons? They are on earth and in the atmosphere around the earth. That's where they are. And just to show you the power of one angel or one demon, turn to Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. Isaiah 37, 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. That's one angel, 185,000 soldiers, Assyrian soldiers. Satan has so many of his minions under him that it appears as if he is omnipresent, but he is not. There are plenty of demons around to torment Christians and Christian missionaries and Christian ministers. 
Where is Satan now? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. Revelation 2.13 To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. At that time that John wrote this, Satan was in Pergamum. He can't be in two places at one time. He's in one place at one time. And the, the Bible records where certain activities of Satan when he was directly involved. So at the temptation of Christ, Satan directly came, right? He had a conversation with Jesus. The rest of the time he sends his demons, but there are certain important events where he directly comes. So when at the time of the Last Supper, after Jesus gave the sop to Judas, the Bible says Satan entered him. So Satan, for that important task, Satan himself came down or came to that place and entered him. Where is Satan now? I don't know. Your, your guess is as good as mine. He could be anywhere. He could be anywhere, but his demons are everywhere. Satan cannot indwell a believer because we have the Spirit of God in us. But he can influence a believer from the outside through physical means. The second kind of attack is the fallen world system and non-believers. The fallen world system and non-believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers, in danger from Gentiles. We can get tormented by the world system and unbelievers. All the disciples, all the disciples were tortured and killed. All of them. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Every single one of them. Thomas was, was lanced in the state next to where I stayed in, back in India. In Chennai. In Chennai. He was lanced. And right in the middle of the city there is what is called as St. Thomas Mount where he died. Every single one of the disciples were tortured and killed. There is persecution in many countries. Let's read a verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Why is it that an unbeliever cannot understand our logical position? Because they don't have the Spirit of God in them and therefore they cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. 
So for those things that are so obvious to us as believers, because we know, because we have the Spirit of God, they are baffled how we can do certain things because they don't get it. They don't have the Spirit of God. So when you're sharing the gospel to somebody and they are incredulous in their questioning, why are you in the Czech Republic or why are you in whatever country you are doing this for, for what? Why are you doing it? it? It is baffling to them. They don't have the Spirit of God to understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. So you can face ridicule in the Christian countries, but in non-Christian countries, you can face torture. Obviously, I was not going to put a picture of torture up, but I thought I would uh, get this picture from museum in St. Augustine, Florida. I guess that's how they tortured, with a nail through the tongue. North Korea is the worst country to be a Christian in, according to opendoors.com. O-R-G, a website started by Brother Andrew, who was known as God's smuggler, and he smuggled Bibles into a lot of countries, Romania and China and so on. There are between 50,000 and 70,000 Christians being held in horrific labor camps in North Korea simply because they believe in Jesus. And, and it's horrific labor camps. You come into those labor camps, you never leave. You never leave. Most of them die there, but all of them are tortured there. The torture is terrible. They are made to stand in water up to their nose so that they have to stand on their tippy toes so that they don't drown. If you're a Christian and you tell your kid and your kid goes to school and says that your mother is a Christian, before the kid comes back from school, your parents are gone. Hia Wu is a Christian who was imprisoned in North Korea. When she arrived at the prison camp where she was held, she saw a sign that says, Do not try to escape, you shall be killed. But she was very fortunate that she was released and then managed to escape, something that is doubly impossible. She was released and then managed to escape to South Korea, and she gave this report. She says, the guards were merciless. They kicked me and beat me with sticks. Constantly there were people dying. Death was a part of our daily life. The bodies were usually burned, and the guards scattered the ashes on the path. Every day we walked down that path, and I always thought, one day the other prisoners will be walking over me. She says, God helped me to survive. Even more, he gave me a desire to evangelize among other prisoners. He showed me whom I should approach. God used me to lead five people to the faith. We met together out of view of the guards, often that was in the toilet. There we held short services. I taught them Bible verses and some songs which we sang inaudibly. Of course, Satan uses unbelievers in the fallen world system to torment and to refine his attack on Christians. 
The third category is what I will call temperamental weaknesses. Temperamental weaknesses. Verse 29, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Paul may have been talking about a physical weakness or a weakness related to age, but I'm going to include all kinds of weaknesses, including temperamental weaknesses and maybe physical defects maybe you're born with or health issues that you have can all come under this category. Now, there are numerous kinds of temperament descriptions. The one that I use was initially thought by Hippocrates and popularized about 50 years ago by Tim LaHaye. Okay, so there are different kinds. The one I use is uh, sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic. Have you guys used this before? How many of you have used this? Okay, perfect, perfect. So then you know. So there are so many different kinds and, you know, this is just one of them. But it is thought that there are four categories or four temperaments of people and it would have been boring if it were just, you know, if we were 100% of everything. But that's not how it is. There is a variety of a mix. So usually we are a mix of two categories. The introverted categories are the melancholic and the phlegmatic. The extroverted categories are the sanguine and the choleric. Somehow this arrangement is based on being extroverted or not. So the most extroverted one is the one on the top. The most introverted one is the one on the bottom. But each of these temperaments have their pros and their cons. So a sanguine is a person who is, a, who is the life of the party. He's got stories. If he walks into the room, everybody pays attention. The thing is, as I describe a temperament, it'll be better if you didn't look at a person who has a temperament in the room. Because I'm about to say the weaknesses of that person and we don't want, we don't want to hear that. A choleric is a person who is a leader. He's a go-getter. He will get stuff done. Most of the world's top leaders are cholerics. A melancholic person is a genius. He is intelligent. He is creative, but he, has, he can have mood swings. A phlegmatic is a person who is slow and calm and relaxed, but he has his own issues that, is that he, doesn't, he tries not to do much. And by that I mean he's extremely lazy. So the, the, the downside of a sanguine, the downside of a sanguine is that they have lust issues and they are extremely disorganized. Okay, that is for a hundred percent sanguine. If you have a mix of something else that makes you organized, that's great. So you can have mix of two different kinds of temperaments where the positive of one overrides the negative of the other one and that's great. So the mix can be 80-20 or 60-40 or 40-60 or 20-80 or, or various different kinds that add to the variety that we all are. The downside of a choleric is that he is heartless and not people oriented. He is goal oriented. The downside of a melancholic is that they are so perfectionist that that can hinder them from doing anything and they are prone to mood swings. The phlegmatic is lazy and gives random excuses to avoid doing work. 
The Bible in uh, Proverbs gives an example of a lazy person and says, the lazy man puts his hand into the dish and doesn't want to bring it to his mouth. I mean, that's how lazy a phlegmatic is. Just, he just gives random excuses that he has convinced himself are true to avoid doing work. But the interesting thing is that when you look at the temperaments in the Bible, Peter was a sanguine. Paul was a choleric. John was a melancholic. And Moses was a phlegmatic. And if you read the story of Moses, when he was in the desert, he gave every excuse that he could to not get into the ministry, right? This is something that is fascinating to me. So much so that God who made Moses and God who made the temperaments, the Bible says by the third excuse that Moses gave, the anger of the Lord burned against him. Isn't that fascinating? Even God was mad at Moses for the excuses that he gave. You may have weaknesses of the temperament because of the temperament you have. Okay. That is an initial excuse that's okay. But over time, as the Spirit of God continues to change us from within, the weaknesses in our temperament need to change. That cannot be a permanent excuse. Whether you're a phlegmatic or a choleric or a sanguine, the Spirit of God sanctifying us from the inside should continually change us so that those weaknesses lessen over time. And they're not excuses anymore. The fourth opposition that we may have is what I will call the danger within. Verse 26, I have constantly, I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And for me, this is the saddest of all the thorns because these are thorns that other Christians cause us. Other Christians cause us. Christians fighting against each other. And when that happens, the end vision is completely lost. When one Christian fights against another Christian, they have completely missed the end goal, the actual mission that we have been called to do. I grew up in a pastor's home and we had an independent church and you know my dad used to go 25 times to a house uh, to a hindu's house before they finally agreed to listen to the gospel and then 50 more other times before they had a conversion experience and then years of discipling and discipling and teaching and bible studies and then we would get believers one at a time one at a time it was hard and then there would be these other churches that didn't want to do the hard work and would just come and take our fish from our pond into their pond. They're fishing, but they're fishing in the, somebody else's pond. My brother in California, he started a ministry about 15 years ago for drug and alcohol rehabilitation. So in India, we have about six or seven centers in different parts of the country. 
My parents are fully involved in that. And it is a ministry where people are on the edge of life or death. So either they will overdose and die or they will come to our center and we teach them the Bible all day, every day for about a year and they are completely turned around and they go back and you know they've wasted their life on drugs and alcohol and then they have to start from zero at age 40 or 50 or 60. But there's a lot of opposition to that ministry, a lot of opposition. We have our windows broken so many times of our house. So in Bangalore where my parents stay or where I grew up, the bottom floor is where we stay and the top floor is where the center is. And so we have opposition from people outside who would come and break all the windows every now and then. They would just come and throw stones, break all the windows, we replace them. And then we have these people that are recovering from drugs and alcohol. They get out of control and they break all the windows from the inside. So always we are replacing these windows and, and facing this. So there's always opposition. So in the ministry that we have in Manipur, in one of the states in India, we had a ministry leader there who was in charge of the school that we have, a 200-kid school and a HIV home for women and kids that we have there. He was in charge of that. One fine day, he realized that he could make money if he had complete control of it. So he brainwashed the teachers there and said that we are making a ton of money in the U.S. and not giving any money to, to Manipur and for the ministry. And so they started to get against us. So my brother left California. He and his family moved to Manipur and stayed there for a year to sort it out. You can get attacks from the inside. And those are sad. Yes, it's one thing to get an attack from a non-believer because they don't have the Spirit of God. But when you get an attack from a believer who has the Spirit of God, but they are seeking uh, monetary benefits or other benefits, then, then it's very, very sad. The fifth category I will point to is poverty. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul had no food. He had no clothing. His tent making job was well. Tent making. But it wasn't enough. Jesus borrowed most things. I mean, Jesus didn't have anything either. In a sermon by John MacArthur in 1988 called The Humiliation of Christ, he says this, imagine he owned everything, but when he came into this world, he was borrowing everything. He had to borrow a place to be born and not much of a place at that. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. Many nights he slept on the Mount of Olives. He had to borrow a boat to cross the little Sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city when he was being triumphantly welcomed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He had to borrow a room for the Passover because he didn't have a house in Jerusalem. He had to borrow even a tomb to be buried in. Pastors in many Eastern non-Christian countries have a very poor existence because there is no physical benefits. 
I'm not saying it's easier to do ministry in the West or it's easier to do ministry in America, but for Christian ministry in America, you get tax benefits, right? Let me ask you, how much giving would we get if there was no tax benefit in the US? I'm not saying it's gonna come down to zero, but we do get a benefit because it was a traditionally Christian country. I'm not saying that every student that comes out of seminary in the US becomes a pastor of a big church and has all the benefits with pension and so on. That's not true. But when they do, there are benefits and they are kind of protected. Yes, there is ridicule and opposition and the attempt by the state to control what you say. But in non-Christian countries that many of you are in, the opposition is much more fierce. I remember when my dad was a pastor, he would teach on the side to make some money and the equivalent in today's money was about $50 a month. And even to this day, it was baffling, it is baffling to me. How on earth did I study in one of the best schools in the city of Bangalore? Me and my brother studied in one of the best schools in the city and how did we get by on $50 a month? Absolutely stunning the way God is able to lead his people. He is able to multiply the five loaves and two fish in a way that you cannot imagine. Matthew chapter 6 verse 31 through 33. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God hasn't promised riches or comfort, but he knows how to take care of his children. I used to work in a mission hospital in India in 2000 to 2001. It was one of the biggest hospitals in India in a place called Vellore, South India, at the Christian Medical College and Hospital. So I was working there, and the rule in that hospital was, if you were an employee of that hospital, you and your family had everything free. You could come and get, come and be seen by any doctor, have any blood work, any procedure, any surgery, completely free. So my last day there was <coughs> July 31st, 2001. And on July 30th, 2001, I went and got myself every blood work that you can imagine <laughs> and every x-ray that you can imagine just for fun because it was free. Free for the employees. If the Christian Medical College and Hospital at Vellore, India knows how to take care of his employees, do you think that the Lord of the universe does not know how to take care of his employees. You bet he does. If you ask a Christian, why do you work? And the answer is, I want to pay my student loans, and I want to provide for my family, and I want to save for the future, 
the Bible says that that is the pagan answer. Because a Christian answer is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When you ask a Christian, the answer should be, I am working to put into the ministry for the purposes of God and God will take care of everything else. The sixth kind of opposition that we will face are what I will call personal sins. Verse 29, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? We have personal sins. Some of the sins of the youth can be very hard to get rid of. If you have sins of the youth that you accumulated, that you got into during your vulnerable stage in the time of your youth, those are very hard to get rid of. Very hard to get rid of. Marriage doesn't fix it. The sins are still there. Having children doesn't fix it. Sins are still there. Being in ministry doesn't fix it. Those sins are still there. They are always there. And they will swoop in like a fungal infection. A fungal infection happens when your defenses are down. When your immune system is down, a fungal infection swoops into your body, right? The sins of your youth are always there. And the moment we let our defenses down, it swoops right in. You could have been in the ministry for 30 years, it doesn't matter. They are always there, lurking in the shadows. Some of the ministry you do today may be based on those sins. And that is the faithfulness of God, because God does not waste even sins. Or you may have some secret sin that nobody knows about. But you know it and you've been battling with it. Unfortunately, the secret sins does not always have secret consequences. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Joshua chapter 7. The context is the people of Israel just had an amazing victory when they went around the city of Jericho 13 times, the walls fell down and they rushed in and they claimed victory on the first big city west of the Jordan. And this was their entry into the promised land and they had this major victory. It was a huge event. And the last verse of chapter 6, Joshua chapter 6 reads, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. After that victory, they, they, you know, they celebrated it, and then it was time for the next victory. So they went to look at the next city. The next city was called Ai. He sent a few people to spy on the city. They said, it's a very small city. We don't need to send the whole army. So let's just send 3,000 people. So Joshua sent 3,000 people 
to defeat the city of Ai. And the Bible says they beat them. The city of Ai beat them. They killed 300 of the people. And the people of the army of Israel went back with their tails between their legs. And so it says, verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the lands of the Amorites, destroy us? You know, this is this kind of prayer where, oh, you know, why this, uh, you gave all these promises and how come this happening right now? And he goes into this whole monologue until verse 10, when the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. God had heard the monologue. He said, what are you doing now on your face? Israel has sinned. And when he says Israel has sinned, it was not the whole country of Israel that sinned. When you read on, there was just one person that sinned. Achan sinned, and when God told the people of Israel, don't take anything from Jericho, he did. He stole some things from Jericho, put it in his tent, and buried it. He thought nobody knew it was a secret sin, but the consequences was not secret because Israel was defeated. And so Joshua was asked to purge that sin. That sin needed to be purged before God could give them victory again. Maybe if you're having difficulties in your ministry, maybe if you're having lack of success in your ministry, lack of penetration of the gospel in your ministry, and it's none of the other things, maybe there is a secret personal sin that is lurking that nobody knows but it is showing up in the ministry the seventh kind is what I will call godly discipline godly discipline 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. As if all these other things that Paul faced were not enough. God needed to discipline him. It is thought that the thorn in the flesh may have been a physical defect, maybe epilepsy or blindness or a limp that Paul had, or it may be one of these tortures that he faced. But he had something that was chronic. It was not a one-time thing. It was a chronic thing. And the Bible says he asked the Lord three times, and the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. So that thorn was there for the rest of his life. And the reason why the thorn was there is because he, I guess, had a tendency, like all of us, to get conceited. And so God wanted to put a thorn in his side. Let's read a verse. James chapter 3, verse 1. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. How's that for recruitment? 
because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. If you know more, you're going to be judged more strictly. God cannot use a person that he cannot discipline. Can't do it. Because our cells would interfere in the ministry. God has to be able to discipline us in order to use us. In fact, the more you want God to use you, the more God will discipline you. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when he wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay that only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, how his good God undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. It was A.W. Tozer who said, whom God will use greatly, he will hurt deeply. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, following it reads, Therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. We're going to have a time of prayer and the question is how are we going to respond to the thorns? How are we going to respond to the thorns? One of the hardest prayers that you can ever pray is to ask God to discipline you so that you can be more useful for him. Very, very hard. Very hard. Let's get into a time of prayer.